0: So many aspects of the Buddhist teachings about the nature of suffering and the possibilities of liberation resonate with our common sense understanding of ourselves in the world. It's easy to understand the importance of non-harming as the basic moral principle of living together, whether living together in community, whether locally or globally. It's easy to understand, although we often forget, that everything in our lives is changing, both inside and outside, and that the more we hold on to or grasp at (coughs) that which in its nature changes, the more we'll suffer. So this is, all can make sense to us in a fairly straightforward way. But there's one aspect of the teaching that offers a profoundly different way of understanding ourselves. One that challenges our entire world view. And it's the understanding that made the Buddha's enlightenment such an extraordinary event in all the cultures of awakening around the world. And this is the deep understanding and realization of selflessness in Pali Anatta, the realization, the recognition, the understanding of the inherent insubstantiality of all phenomena. And it's this teaching of Anatta or selflessness that is really the great liberating jewel of the Buddhist teachings. And it's the realization of which, which establishes us unalterably on the path to awakening. It's this understanding of selflessness that constitutes the essence of the first stage of enlightenment called stream entry As our awareness becomes stronger and more stable, we find that the self is not what we thought it to be. We see that the body is not self. We see that thoughts are not self. We see that emotions are not self. And on the most subtle level, we see that even awareness, is not self. We begin to see more and more clearly that the deeply rooted and often felt sense of self is a concept. It's a mental construct. It's a fabrication of our minds. This was captured very pithily by the great Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein, he said, the sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast by grammar. You know, we have constructed and our language reinforces (laughs) this sense of a separate self, a separate I. So when we realize this, even for short moments, it's both a great surprise and a great relief. You know, all those troubling aspects of our personalities, which we have to face all day, every day, as well as the wonderful qualities, you know, of our hearts and minds, they don't belong to anyone. They are all simply appearances, all these qualities that we've taken to be self, they're simply appearances arising out of, changing conditions. And when we see this, when we begin to at least get glimpses of it, we, we appreciate what was expressed by one Sri Lankan monk when he said, no self, no problem. You know, it's because we take these things to be self that we create problems. So tonight I'd like to speak about how the mind creates this deeply conditioned concept of self. Now, if it's an illusion, if it's a fabrication, a mental construct, if it's the cause of so much suffering, why do we keep on doing it? So in the Abhidhamma, which is the Buddhist psychology, there's a very useful framework for understanding how this happens. So the model in the Abhidhamma describes the mind as the basic faculty of knowing, what we call consciousness. You know, so it's knowing sight, knowing sound, knowing smell, taste, sensations of the body, ideas. So consciousness is simply knowing these different sense objects, including the mind. But what we call mind is also something more than just the arising of these sense door consciousness is. In each moment of experience, different qualities called mental factors are arising in various combinations with each moment of consciousness and they color the consciousness in a particular way. So for example, greed is a mental factor. It colors the mind, it colors that moment of consciousness in the way that greed does, It sticks to the object. Hatred, joy, love, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, restlessness, boredom, compassion. They're all mental factors, each functioning in their own way. Now some of these factors of mind lead to happiness. And so we call them wholesome. Some of these factors of mind lead to unhappiness, lead to suffering. So we call them unwholesome. So in this sense, Buddhist ethics is very pragmatic. It's really a training in happiness and the causes of happiness. It's not about commandments that we follow. It's about understanding how our minds work and how our lives unfold. So there's the simplicity just of knowing Understanding that that knowing that consciousness is always being colored by a variety of different mental factors. Now there's one particular factor of mind that is common to every moment of experience. But when it is out of balance, it's this particular factor which keeps us imprisoned in the world of concepts. It keeps us imprisoned in the notion of self. And this is the mental factor, the particular factor of mind that is called perception. And the function of perception in the Buddhist terminology is to recognize, name, and then remember, each arising object. So for example, we hear a sound. So that's just hearing consciousness. It's perception, which is arising right in that moment, it recognizes that sound as being a bird. Puts a name on it, (coughs) puts a concept on it. We remember that name so that the next time we hear a like sound, oh, that's a bird. when perception which is this faculty factor of recognition is balanced with mindfulness then it's like putting a frame around a picture now we put a frame around a picture to focus our attention on the picture itself so it's for this reason that perception is said to be one of the causes for mindfulness to arise. And you can see it in the mental noting, you know, when when you're using that as a tool. The mental note is the fact of perception, it's not mindfulness. The mental note is the fact of perception, it's recognizing. Oh, hearing, seeing, tension, tightness, thinking. It's putting a concept, it's putting a name on the experience in order to see the experience more clearly. And that's the function of mindfulness. So it's the the picture frame which focuses our attention. So that's when they're working well together. But when there is perception, that is the naming, the recognizing the naming, when there is perception without mindfulness, without awareness, which as you'll see as I go on in the talk, is our usual way of being in the world. Most people are living in the realm of perceptions without mindfulness. We're living in the world of concepts. When perception is there without mindfulness, then we are staying just on the surface appearance of things. We give a name or a concept to what arises and then our experience becomes limited by that concept. So that's like looking more at the frame and less at the picture. You know, we're enticed by the concept about what's happening and not looking directly at the experience. So, for an example of just how limiting this can be, it's, this is just kind of a little story that happened many years ago. The son of a friend of mine kind of was in second or third grade, and the teacher was asking the class, you know, what color are apples? So, different kids said different things, you know, red, green. And the son of my friend said white. And the teacher said, no, apples aren't white. (laughs) You know, they can be red, golden, green, they're not white. But the the kid was insistent, no, they are white. And the teacher was insistent, they're not white. (laughs) And then the kid, in great frustration, said, when you cut the apple open, what color is it? You know, he was really one step ahead. (laughs) Because he wasn't limited by the superficial perception, oh, apples are red, or apples are green. When we get caught or fixated on the concept, then we often don't see other dimensions of what is actually happening. Our perceptions, that is the concepts which we overlay on experience, not only does it often limit us, but it often conditions how we feel about that experience. And often our perceptions are inaccurate. You know, they're not even correct. There are many stories illustrating this, uh, but since this is a three month retreat, This is a story from the first three-month retreat I sat with Saida Upandita. This was in 84, very kind of intense. You know, we were just sleeping four hours a night, seeing him every day, and very charged. He's a very demanding teacher. So it was, for me personally, it was a difficult retreat. So I was outside, just outside, doing walking meditation. And I glanced up to what's room. 107, Miyoshin's interview room, and I saw Sayadaw Pandita looking down on me from the window, you know, just walking back and forth. So, <laughs> immediately. <laughs> yeah. Started walking even slower, kind of pretending to be mindful. <laughs> you know, and then I walk a length, glance up, he's still looking. looking. <laughs> so all the time, obviously, I wasn't very mindful, I was just... <laughs> but I was <laughs> following the f- the outward form at least. So this went on for quite a while and I kept looking at it. Finally, I said, why is he up there just watching me walk for so long? <laughs> and then I looked more carefully and I saw it was Nupandita, it was a lampshade. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll bet none of you have had a lambshade condition your life. (laughs) Faulty perception. (laughs) This happens a lot. There is a long list of examples about how we misperceive things. And then in the misperception, it really conditions how we act, how we feel. So we can see this tendency to limit and solidify our view of the world through concepts in many areas of life. And sometimes it's with very harmful consequences. So this is not an insignificant dynamic. So Just as a few examples of how concepts have such a powerful influence in our view of the world. This concepts that are created in the mind, concepts of place, the idea that there are actually boundaries between countries. You know, how many wars have been fought? How many people have been killed fighting over boundaries? You know, and one of the great things when the, when the astronauts were first going into space, you know, into the moon, many of them came back reporting almost a like a quasi-mystical experience of seeing the unity of the earth. Because from space, there are no boundaries. It's a a mind-created concept which we invest a lot of reality into and then put a lot of energy into defending. Concepts of ideology. You know, tremendous suffering. Just you know, over the last years from both sides. You know, we create the concept axis of evil. And then there are these countries which belong to the axis of evil. And from the other side, you know, America is seen as the great Satan. So it's another ideology. And people get attached to these concepts. They're just ideas. They're just mental constructs. And look at the consequences this concept of ownership and possession. We actually have the idea that we own things. What does ownership mean? You know, we're in a certain relationship to objects and maybe have certain responsibilities for them, but it's a mind-created relationship, sometimes with huge suffering. Just look, consider the legacy of slavery in this country. You know, the idea that some beings can own other beings. And the immense amount of suffering, both during that time, but also the legacy of racism. You know, that still endures. Creates so much division, so much harm. What we see in the world, the legacy of colonialism. That one country can own another country. This is an idea, this is a mind-constructed concept. So there's real impact here. This is not just a philosophical discussion. And we might think, oh, well, we can see these are concepts. We're not so influenced by them. Concept of ownership. Well, just just imagine coming into the hall and you see somebody sitting on your cushion. (laughs) I'll bet there would be a moment. (laughs) There might not start a war, but there would be a moment. (laughs) What are they doing on my (laughs) cushion? (laughs) You know, see, even in the smallest things, this idea of ownership, of possessiveness, possession takes hold. The Buddha said we can't even be said to own this mind and body, much less anything else. But it affects our lives a lot. And there's a wonderful little haiku poem by the Zen monk Ryokan, who was a wonderful, I think it was nineteenth century or somewhere around there. Lived as this hermit monk in the mountains of Japan, and he just wandered around, you know, the mountain villages, playing with the village children, meditating, and writing poetry. And wonderful teachings from him, and, and wonderful collection of his haiku. And one day he came back to his little hut. He was very poor. He had almost nothing, you know, just maybe a a mat to sleep on, a few cooking utensils. And he came back to his hut one day and everything was stolen. His hut was completely emptied. So he sat down and wrote a haiku. (laughs) The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. (laughs) Now just imagine going back to your house after the retreat, Everything's stolen. The moon at the window. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Why? Because we have the idea that we own things <laughs> and we expect them to be there. Okay. Perhaps more impactful, even than any of the concepts I've already mentioned, although they are all impactful, is the concept and the mental construct of time, of past and future. We live in the world of time. And just reflect, just in the course of today, how much of your day was spent lost in thoughts of past, lost in thoughts of future? Probably a fair amount. That's what our mind does we have invested a reality into these concepts. And yet when we look to see what is the direct experience here? If we take the concept as the picture frame and look to see what's happening rather than believing in the concept, what's actually in the frame of the concept past? What's in the frame are certain thoughts arising in the mind, thoughts arising in the present moment, memories, reflections, remembrances, certain kinds of thought. That's actually what's happening. But because we've become so conditioned through perception to recognize the pattern of these thoughts, give it a name, past, and then through a Mental gymnastic kind of throw this concept back behind us as if the past is a reality back there. And we do the same thing with the future. Future is a concept. It's a picture frame around something, around what? The term future is the picture frame around thoughts arising in the moment of planning or imagining, or anticipating certain kinds of thoughts. We give the concept future to it, toss it out ahead of us, and then believe that the future is a reality out there waiting for us. When we don't see into the conceptual nature of time, past and future are a huge burden. It's as if we're carrying past and future around on our shoulders throughout our lives you know, thinking about the past, worrying about the past feeling bad about the past, feeling good about it and the same with the future we're just living in this realm when really all that's happening is that there's a thought in the moment the thought in the moment is very light there's hardly anything there but we get caught in the concept and we invest a reality in the concept, and it's a huge burden. St. Augustine had a, a good line here. He said, If the past and future really exist, where are they? <laughs> it's a great little koan. You know, look for the past, look for the future. What do we find? It's a thought in the moment. That's all it is. Now to take this even one step further, which is amazingly liberating, it's not only past and future that are concepts, we also create the concept of present. And so much of the teaching and the advice, be in the present moment, stay in the present, connect with the present. Forget all that. <laughs> <laughs> because we can become attached to and fixated on the present. There's a Portuguese poet, his name was Pessoa. And he had this one poem. He said, live you say in the present, live only in the present, but I don't want the present I want reality. You know, when I read that, it was just such a great Dharma teaching. And it was expressed by the Buddha in a verse of the Dhammapada, which is very powerful. This is a verse that, if we heard it in the right way, we could become fully enlightened. So listen carefully. <laughs> this is your big chance. But you have to do it, not think about it. Okay. And it's very simple. The Buddha said, let go of the past. Okay. Let go of the future. Let go of the present and cross over to the further shore. (coughs) With the mind wholly liberated, you go beyond birth and death. And I love this, let go of the past. Okay, we got that, let go of the future. Let go of the present. Let go of the fixation fixation on the concept of the present. You can just feel the mind release. Okay, concepts of place, of ownership, of time. Concepts of self-images. We have so many ideas of ourselves, of how we present ourselves to others, how we present ourselves to ourselves. As soon as we create some idea about ourselves, some concept, it's like we're in prison. I don't know they When I was a kid, I did not know whether you have the same experience or not, but like in summer camp, for those of you who ever went to summer camp, did you ever you know, do these plaster of Paris molds? You know, Where there's a mold and you pour plaster of Paris into it and it comes out looking like something. <laughs> <laughs> it's questionable what it l- sometimes look like. But that's, that was the image that comes to mind when we identify with a concept of a self-image. It's like pouring ourselves into this mold and then wondering why we feel constrained in our lives, you know, why we feel limited. Because we identify with a concept. On retreat, we can see this so clearly. Some moments, I'm a good yogi. Some moments, I'm a bad yogi. (laughs) I just go up and down. You know, identified with these different self-assessments, they're just concepts, they're just ideas in the mind. Or we project those very same ideas onto others. No, they're a good yogi, they're a bad yogi. And then we compare ourselves, so we get caught in that way. Concepts become limiting, even about things that seem more fundamental, that we might not even think of as concepts. Age, gender, race, culture. So just to give some idea of perhaps another way of holding this, what color is awareness? Does race have any substantiality when we're looking at our minds how old is your breath oh my breath is 50 years old what does age mean when we're on that level of moment-to-moment experience you know is the pain in the knee male or female is anger or love or wisdom or joy or fear is this Western? Is it Eastern? Is it American? Is it Burmese? No. So when we're on a fundamental level, a lot of these things that we so identify with, of being a certain age or a certain race or a certain culture, even a certain gender, on another level we begin to go beyond even those, what we could call more fundamental notions. Now it It's not to say that these concepts don't point to certain differences in experience, because they do. You know, so they have a use. I'm not saying that they don't point to anything, you know, in our experience. It's just that if we get attached to them and get identified with them and take them to be self, we miss the underlying realities and we miss the commonality of the underlying realities, which is a cause of a lot of divisiveness and separation in the world. Okay, the deepest conditioning and habit of mind and the root source of so much suffering in our lives is the attachment we have to the concept of self just like place and possessions and time and self-image and all the others, self itself is a mental construct. The idea that there is someone behind experience to whom it's all happening. You know, it's as if in our minds We create a reference point for experience and then we call, we name that reference point self. So how does this happen? What's what's the process that we can observe so we can understand how we're creating this again and again? We become attached to and identified with the idea of self because we usually rely on and are satisfied with superficial impressions we just stay on the surface of things we get up in the morning look in the mirror recognize a certain appearance and then create a concept designating what we see yeah that's me that's joseph that's who i am and so, ordinary. Of course, who else would it be? <laughs> <laughs> but then we don't look more deeply. It's just, it's the designation for a superficial perception, yeah, Joseph. And then we're satisfied with that. We don't look more deeply to see, oh, what is really there? So an example of this. You know, after a rainstorm, you know, in Summer days, sometimes a rainbow appears. Rainbow's beautiful, and we look at it, and we feel a certain joy and a delight. You know, we show other people, look at the rainbow. But really, what is a rainbow? A rainbow is an appearance arising out of the coming together of certain conditions, of moisture and air and light in a certain configuration, when those conditions come together, a rainbow appears. There's no such thing as a rainbow in and of itself. Rainbow is simply an appearance arising out of those conditions. Now this doesn't mean that we don't see what we see. We will see the rainbow. And we can name it, we can use the concept. But if we don't look deeper to see the inherent insubstantiality, there's no thing called rainbow. It's simply an appearance. Then we go Chasing after the pot of gold at the end of it. You know, we take the concept to be real. And this is what we do in our lives. We're we're chasing the various pots of gold that we think is at the end of our various concepts and ideas. How much of our sense of self comes from a superficial perception we have of the body. This body, it seems so solid, you know, so me. Somebody asks you, who are you? You know, this is the first thing we pointed. This is who I am, you know, this body. Some time ago, there was an ad in the New York Times for a t-shirt. And the t-shirt, the, the writing on the t-shirt said, me, me, me. So I thought we should have a meditator's T-shirt. Not me, not me, <laughs> not me. <laughs> because when we're not satisfied with a superficial perception of the body, yeah, this is the body, this is my body, this is who I am. When we're not satisfied with that superficial perception, but are actually examining and looking more deeply, we see that what we call body, what that word is, Designates is actually the interrelationship of a lot of different systems. You know, there's the blood, the circulatory system, and the organs, and the skeleton, and just a lot of systems working together, and it gives the appearance of the body. If we really understood the body in this way, we probably would not call the liver me. That's who I am. You know, or the gallbladder. Yeah, I'm the gallbladder. <laughs> no. but somehow there are all these systems, and they're very nicely wrapped in skin. You know, this a nice little package. And then we get attached to it. Get attached to my body. To other people's bodies how attached would we be if we could really see with x-ray vision you know if we could really see what the body is what it is that we're calling body it's not something in itself it's just a designation it's an appearance just like the rainbow of different elements coming together working together and of course the corollary of attachment to the body, which is very strong in all of us. The corollary of that attachment is fear of losing it and fear of death. If there were no attachment to the body, there would be no fear of death. So we want to look at this. You know, what is it that we're actually attached to? And what we're attached to very often is conditioned by this concept body, my body. And then, if somehow we had the ability to look on an even deeper level, the cellular level, or the atomic level, or subatomic level, it said that all the matter of the body, all the matter that constitutes the body, if the space was all removed would be no bigger than a particle of dust. You know, because really the cells, are at, what are, atoms are mostly empty space. You know, and the, so that's quite a thought. You know, that every, this, this body that I'm taking to be me no bigger than a particle of dust. In meditation as the awareness becomes more stable you know, and steadier. We go from the perception of the body as being something solid to experience it as a fluid energy system. So this is how the practice unfolds. And many of you probably have had that experience at least you know, for times when the whole sense of the solidity of the body disappears and it's just a flow of energy. But as long as we stay fixated on the level of concept, body, and superficial perception, our understandings and possibilities are very limited. So just for fun, th- this this is just a little fun sidebar. I want to read a couple of stories about Deepama and who... You know, she's been mentioned uh, earlier in the retreat as this amazing woman and teacher of ours ours, who, you know, very quickly had attained to great levels of realization and also through the powers of concentration, all the traditional psychic powers that you read about in the books. And Munindra, who was my first teacher, trained her in Burma in all of these things so, in case you're still holding on to the notion of the body as being something solid and fixed and self, these are some of the things that Deepama could do. So, according to Munindra, Deepama demonstrated each of the different psychic powers to him. The following accounts are based on Munindra's recollections. You may not believe it, he said, but it's true. Once Munindra was in his room when he noticed something unusual in the sky outside his window. He looked out and saw Deepama in the air near the tops of the trees, grinning at him and playing in a room she had built in the sky. By changing the air element to the earth element, she had been able to create a structure in midair. Changing denser elements to air produced only slightly less astonishing occurrence, occurrences. Sometimes Deepa Ma and her sister arrived for interviews with Munindra by spontaneously appearing in his room. And Deepa Ma occasionally left by walking through the closed door. If she was feeling especially playful, she might rise from her chair, go to the nearest wall, and walk right through it. Deepa Ma's abilities in this regard were once tested by a third party. Munindra knew a professor of ancient Indian history at the local university who was skeptical about psychic powers. Munindra offered to prove the existence of such powers, and the two of them set up an experiment. The professor posted a trusted graduate student in a room where Deepa Ma was meditating to watch and to make sure that she didn't leave the room. Okay. Deepa Ma's in her room, graduate student, watching her meditate. On the appointed day, the student verified that Deepa Ma never left her meditation posture, and yet at the very same time, she appeared at the professor's office 10 miles away and had a conversation with him. So I have to say, just by way of caution, these powers do not have anything to do with awakening or liberation. They don't. They're not a function of wisdom. They're a function of great powers of concentration and the things that the mind can do. So they're not something to be seduced by or necessarily even aimed for. They're really not important on the spiritual path. The only reason talk about them is because I like to. (laughs) (laughs) Because it just shakes things up a little bit. You know, it's, and as Munindra said, you don't have to believe it, it's pretty far out and outside our realm of experience. But these are not unique to Deepama. I mean, the, these, these powers and the, the methodology is all in the texts, you know, it's, and, and different great beings have, have practiced and developed them. And it just shows that what we take to be so solid, that the world which we take to be so solid in the body, you know, which we take to be so solid in who we are, is not at all how we perceive it. There are so many other levels. And so just to have a very expanded view, not limited by concept. Okay, the strong sense of self happens not only because we're identified so much with the body, but it also happens, the strong sense of self, when we are lost or identified in thought or in emotion with all the internal stories we tell about ourselves or about the world. Now, earlier on in the retreat, I mentioned one short teaching of Munindraji's where he said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. That is a profound teaching the thought of anything is not the thing itself. It's a thought. But we are so conditioned to be lost in thought, to be identified with thought, to think that the thought is the thing itself. And just notice, in the course of your time here, how easily thought can condition and emotion. We think of someone or something or some event, then we can feel happy, sad, angry, fearful, whatever. And what just happened? It was just a thought arising in the mind. The thought is the thinker. All these thoughts and emotions don't belong to anyone. There's a Tibetan teaching which has a great image. It said that thoughts that wander through the mind have no roots, no home. And then it goes on to compare them like to clouds in the sky. Clouds in the sky that wander through the sky have no roots, no home. And I like that image because sometimes I just picture what it would be like if clouds did have roots And from each cloud, there was just a root coming down, tethering it to the earth. I mean, it's a pretty ridiculous thought. And yet that's what we do (laughs) with all the thoughts that are passing through our minds. We're rooting them in a concept of self, as if they belong to a me, instead of seeing that the thought is just like a cloud. It's just an arising out of conditions, arising, passing away. These thoughts have no substantial reality at all, except the reality that we give them. And sometimes, I'm not again suggesting that we get rid of thoughts or should get rid of thoughts or that they're not useful. They are at times. But we want to understand their nature so that we can really assess, is this thought of use? Should it be acted on? Should... Just let it go. But if we haven't seen the selfless nature of thoughts, then we are tormented by them. And when we do see the empty nature, the selfless nature, they become like a wisp of air. There's not much there. The same is true of emotions, although emotions are more complex, but they share the same selfless nature. Each of the emotions that arises, that combination of thought and feeling and bodily sensation and mental mood, you know, that whole complex, which we call an emotion, are also like clouds wandering through the sky. They're like a rainbow. They're an appearance arising out of conditions. There's no I, no self behind them. Love loves, and fear fears, and joy joys. Each emotion, emotions. That's the nature of emotion. Each is doing its own thing. The adding of this concept my anger, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy that's extra we're creating the sense of self every time we identify with the arising emotion so we want to see ourselves see how this is done and see the possibility of staying free in them now we could say that all the experiences of mind and body. Just all the experiences that we're having all day long create an appearance of self. Because there is a pattern. You know, there is a recognizable recurring pattern. So it's like seeing a picture in a mosaic. You know, the picture appears because all of the elements are in a certain pattern. And so there's the picture of a man or a woman or whatever the mosaic is representing. So self or Joseph is like the mosaic. It's like the picture. We give a name to the picture, but the picture doesn't exist other than as an appearance arising out of the pattern of elements. Okay, identified with the body creates a sense of self. We identify with thoughts creates a sense of self we identify with emotions, it creates a sense of self. On the most subtle level, the notion of self happens when we identify with consciousness, with the knowing. We create a sense of a witness, an observer, separate from and standing back from experience. So even when we understand it, as I think we all do to some extent, you know, on some level, I think we get the changing selfless nature of the body. We see that thoughts are coming and going. We see that emotions come and go. So we, we get glimpses, you know, of their impermanent selfless nature. But still, we have the sense that we're the one who is knowing all these things. So we create the sense of the knower, the observer. But through growing wisdom, we see that consciousness itself is dependent on conditions. Consciousness is also arising in the moment because of conditions. So just a little experiment that I did a couple of years ago, I was on retreat at the forest refuge. And I, was just, I was in the dining room, it was mealtime. I was just kind of playing around a little bit with, you could think of it as a kind of thought experiment. And I knew from the teachings, you know, the taste consciousness arises out of conditions. And the conditions are the organ of the tongue and food, and saliva, and attention. And if those, if those conditions are there, there will be taste consciousness. There will be knowing of taste. So I was just eating, and I was playing around, just a moment's thought, as I was eating, well, would there be taste? This is what I, I was asking myself. Would there be taste if there was no tongue? No. Like, taste consciousness depended on, in part, there being a tongue or there being food on the tongue. And so, just in that moment of seeing, yeah, taste consciousness wouldn't be there unless there were a tongue. It's just like that moment of seeing the conditioned nature of consciousness. That it's not I, it's not self, it's just conditions come together. There's knowing a taste. We can do that same thing with hearing or with seeing. What does a moment of seeing depend on? It depends on the physical organ of the eye, light, an object coming in front, and attention. So just imagine, you know, just in a moment, it's just a, a thought experiment. As you're seeing, just think for a moment, would there be that seeing consciousness, that knowing, if there were no eyes? No, or if there were no light, no. Is this making sense to you? I get excited by it. (laughs) I don't know whether you do. (laughs) It's just this, because we're so identified with being the one who knows. This is so deep. That's who I am. Even if I'm not the body and I'm not thoughts and I'm not the emotions, I'm the one who knows. But when we look more carefully, no, that's just another conceptual creation of self. The consciousness itself arises out of conditions. So that's really liberating. Not identified with anything. The Buddha gave this teaching very simply. I've spoken a whole hour on this. The Buddha said it in one line to his son Rahula. And we find this teaching many times in the text. He just just said it so directly. He said that every aspect of mind and body should be seen as it is with perfect wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. Every aspect of mind and body, whatever's arising, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, different mental factors, knowing itself, everything that's arising, whatever your experience is, moment after moment should be seen with perfect wisdom. This is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. So we can use these words you know, just as a reminder throughout the day. It becomes like a mantra of liberation. It's like a, a mantra of awakening. Whatever's happening at different times, remind, remind the mind. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. It's phenomena. Manindra used the line very often, empty phenomena rolling on. What we call self, what we call I, is empty phenomena rolling on. Empty doesn't mean it's not there. It means it's empty of self. Now, very surprisingly, through growing recognition of selflessness, we develop a growing sense of connection. You know, sometimes people hear all this about selflessness and emptiness of self, and create all kinds of concepts about that experience and it kinda maybe feels gloomy or gray or vacuous or disconnected or I don't know, whatever the mind does with it. The actual experience of selflessness. When we free the mind from the prison of this concept, we develop a growing sense of connection because we see more and more deeply there is no one there to be separate. In this understanding, selflessness and love are really the same thing. I'd just like to close with just a teaching from Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan Zöchen masters of the last century. He said, when you understand the empty nature of phenomena, the selfless nature, when you understand the empty selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. That's a beautiful teaching. As we let go of this attachment to the concept of self, through experience, not, not through another concept, through a direct experience, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. And that is the manifestation of compassion and love is the activity of emptiness. And that is our practice. So Let's sit for a moment. another teaching of in Rinpoche he said we live in illusion and the appearance of things there is a reality we are that reality and when we understand this we see we are nothing and being nothing we are everything that is all Would you hear the bell if you had no ears? (laughs) It's just conditioned, conditioned phenomena.